Welcome to the Gospel for Life. We have four Treasure Valley pastors committed to showing that the gospel is not just for that religious part of your life, but rather it's for all of life. You never graduate from the gospel. I'm Josh Bales, pastor of the Well Church, here with Russell Herman, pastor at Cloverdale United Reformed Church, Phil Moran, pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church, and Jonathan Van Hoogen, pastor at Spring United Reformed Church. Now, if you'd like to find out more about us or catch past broadcasts or get information about our annual conference, you can find us at ReformationVoice.com. All right, good afternoon. We have been looking at dispensationalism the last few days, and if you'd like to get caught up on um, those podcasts, just go to The Gospel for Life um, in your podcast catcher, and you can find it. And so today, we're kind of moving on to that last distinctive of dispensationalism, which is um, their view on the end times. And um, he, here's a description of, of what the dispensationalist would hold to when it comes to the end times. So uh, during the church age, the church is to evangelize the nations through the preaching of the gospel. Um, and at the end of that time, Christ will appear um, and rapture the church. Uh, and raising um, those who have died in Christ, um, then there will become then there will come a time of tribulation, a seven year period. The Antichrist will reign during this period, and the Jews will return to Palestine. Um, they will be there converted and accept Jesus as their king. At the end of the tribulation, Jesus and his saints will return to execute judgment on his enemies, and this is his second coming in the dispensational view. At this time, the living will be judged, the sheep and the goats separated. The Antichrist destroyed. Satan will be bound for a thousand years. The saints who died during the tribulation will be raised, and Christ will establish his throne in Jerusalem. The city and the temple will be rebuilt, and the ceremonial law with its altar and sacrifices will be restored. Jesus will now be supreme over all the nations of the earth, and this is then the messianic age which will last for a thousand years. And it will be a period of great prosperity and blessedness um, with the desert blossoming as a rose and the solitary places rejoicing. Um, and then this this is called the premillennial view, by the way, and it teaches that the Jews will be great evangelists. There will be tremendous conversions, bringing in the fullness of the Gentiles. All Israel at that time will be saved. But then at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be let loose for a little while, and then there will be basically Armageddon, and then they will be destroyed by fire from God falling from heaven, and Satan will be cast finally into perdition. Then the rest of the dead will be raised and judged, and the church will be translated into heaven, but Israel will stay on earth, and Christ will reign over them as their eternal king. So that's a thumbnail sketch <laughs> of first of all you guys Whoa, think i'm out of breath <laughs> I, yeah i know i try to I try to go through it quickly but um that's that's kind of basically the view now some dispensations well i i disagree with like this point or that point sure, sure. But that's that's the the broad view of of the end times for dispensationalism sure and just very quickly there are two different views one is historic premillennialism and dispensational premillennialism so um we're really dealing with dispensational premillennialism today um, but there is a, an alternative that goes back a little bit further um, but we're dealing with the the, mm-hmm. the second of those dispensational right premillennialism and 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 the outline uh, that Josh just sketched for you um, once again you, you know you the the listener that may be the only thing that you've ever heard and and you may uh, hold that uh, because that's the only thing you've ever heard that that's the only uh, that that is the Christian interpretation of 
of last things. And uh, with, with wanting to give uh, full respect to, to Christian brothers and sisters, and obviously with their, there's differences of, of interpretation within among faithful Christians, um, the three pastors in this room uh, don't hold those views, although we do firmly hold Christ is going to return. He's going to return in great power and glory. And he's going to, and his his plan for the earth is going to be fulfilled, and and he's going to reign. Uh, so there's no there's no question about that, and there's and there's no division about that. Also, we we fully believe in the authority of Scripture. Um, but let's let's take the beginning of the, the. Let me let's ask the question: What is the purpose of the Book of Revelation? And I'm going to make the argument here, and and I would ask the listener if you're a dispensationalist, just. Hang with me a minute and just just see if this makes any sense. Uh, let's talk about the meaning of the book of Revelation. Uh, it was written sometime around the end of the first century by the Apostle John when he was imprisoned on the Isle, of, based on visions that he saw when he was imprisoned on the Isle of Patmos, visions that uh, God gave him. And um, if the book of Revelation is only about the end times. I want to I want to ask the question, what meaning did it have for its first readers? What meaning did it have if, if it was only about events that were going to happen 2,000 years later? What meaning did it have for those first readers? And let me read the first verse of the book of Revelation. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must happen or the things that must soon Take place. Now, what's the normal meaning of the word soon? And let me answer, or at least say what it's not. It, do, it doesn't mean 2,000 years. Uh, when, when John says these things are going to take place soon, and I want to suggest to you that the book of Revelation is true, and these images have powerful significance for the first century, when John was writing, they have powerful significance for our era, the days that we live in, and it's had powerful significance for every era of history since John wrote it. John is speaking to events in the world and pressures and, and persecutions that the church will face, that Christians throughout history have faced, and there may be an, intensi- an intensification of that persecution and, and that experience of oppression as we near the return of Christ. I certainly wouldn't deny that. But John is writing about things and events that have taken place over and over and over again throughout the history of the church for 2,000 years. I think what we have to understand is that um, when you go back to what Josh said earlier about what dispensationalists believe about the end times and they'll, they'll talk about that the nation of Israel will be restored the sacrifices will actually be re- restored as far as symbolic um, Jesus Christ coming to reign um, all of that you'd have to say okay the Old Testament was there to give a picture of what Christ is going to come and do and fulfill so Jesus Christ has come as the perfect sacrifice the book of Hebrews is saying that no, no longer are sacrifices necessary because Jesus Christ has come. Mm-hmm. So if we started sacrifices again, um, they are such an imperfect picture of perfection. What, what are we doing? Why are we doing them? Right. Um, blood no longer should be shed. 
That's the whole point of the book of Hebrews. Blood has been shed. Perfect blood has been shed. And therefore, the, the, the fact that Jesus Christ has come, that's why we don't do sacrifices anymore. We do the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is to say, this is a picture of what has happened, and the reality no longer happens. Sacrifices aren't going to take place anymore because it's been fulfilled. This is a gift of grace to help you to be nourished, to remember, to cling to, 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 to have a visual representation of perfection. But blood no longer, no. So it, it just falls apart. The most, in the New Testament, the book that contains the most Old Testament quotes and allusion is by far the book of Revelation, and it's not even close. If you don't know your Old Testament, do not open up the book of Revelation because you have no business studying the book. Right. No business studying the book. Because the whole point of Revelation is to draw image after image, allusion after allusion, quote after quote from the Old Testament. And so if you don't understand the Old Testament setting in which those took place, you're never going to understand the book correctly. And so then you're starting to apply things in a way that would be absolutely foreign to the biblical principles of hermeneutics, which says that you allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So you have to understand the Old Testament allusion or the Old Testament reference or the Old Testament context from which that quote or imagery is being lifted. And so I think the great error of the dispensationalists is that they are wrongly interpreting the book of Revelation apart from the biblical context in which it appears. And so we know certain truths about the same imagery is used throughout all of the Bible. Yeah, John is just, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is just simply applying Old Testament imagery um, for the church of today. Yeah, In the church age, his age and our age. Yeah. Um, so in that description that I gave at the beginning of kind of an overview of the end times for the dispensationalist, um, there was basically, if you counted, there was three resurrections that that dispensationalism typically holds to. There's the resurrection that happens at the, the, the rapture of the church. There's the resurrection that happens at the end of the seven-year tribulation. And then there's the resurrection that happens at the end of the thousand years. Now, if you look, especially in the Gospels, um, but also in the book of Revelation, when when the resurrection takes place, first of all, the the Bible only counts one resurrection. And at that resurrection, it's game over. It's it's the judgment of God at that point. I mean, especially in John 5, Jesus very clearly said, truly, truly, I say unto you, a time is coming and is now here when those who are dead will hear the Son of God and they'll be resurrected unto life. Now, that's talking about regeneration of being born again. And the reason why we know that is because Jesus said a time is coming and is now here. And then he immediately says, I say unto you, a time is coming, and he doesn't say, and is now here, when those who are dead in the grave will hear the voice of the Son of God, and they'll be raised, those who have been good, to the resurrection of life, and those who are wicked, to the, the resurrection of judgment. And that that's the one resurrection that the New Testament talks about. It doesn't talk about three. And I think that's one of the one of the problems of understanding eschatology in, in the dispensational way, is that you have to actually admit that there's three different resurrections that happen in that in that scheme. Uh-huh. And that's that's problematic, right? Very much so for me. And, and that's, I think what happens is sometimes a framework has been created, and so then what they do is they try to f- force a book within to a framework. Yeah. And I think we have to allow the book to, and the the scriptures to tell us how to interpret. 
And so book of Revelation does tell us it's a vision. It's a picture book. Right. Um, and I think the handy rule of thumb is in a picture book, what you say is you interpret um, according to imagery, not literally. And so I, when I approach the book of Revelation, um, I look at it and say, um, I will not interpret literally unless I have to, unless the text drives me to a literal interpretation. So my default then for the book of Revelation is to say it's imagery, it's it's apocalyptic language, and I will interpret it as such unless the text specifically drives me to a literal um, interpretation, and it will rarely do so. Right. One of the one of the things I think we perhaps alluded to in an earlier show was that the Bible is a collection of different kinds of literature, and when you approach the Bible, uh, we don't, don't approach it, uh, it. Hang with me here a minute. Don't approach it as a single book. Approach it as as you would a library, and within that library, there's lots of different books. And you know, if you go into different sections of the library, you pull down a book of poetry, you're going to interpret it one way. Pull down a book of fiction, you're going to interpret it another way. Pull down a book of history uh, or science, you're going to interpret that a different way. There's a particular kind of literature in the Bible. It's, scholars call it apocalyptic. Um, and the examples would be much of the book of Daniel, uh, the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Uh, there's uh, sections of the teaching of Jesus. Jesus uses apocalyptic language in some of his teaching uh, about end times. And then, of course, the book of Revelation, probably the most famous in the Bible, these, these really wild images. And, and apocalyptic literature needs to be interpreted by its own rules, not by rules that we bring to it when, when we don't understand what kind of literature we're reading. Yeah. Amen. Well, if you want a good book on um, this subject, I would recommend Christ and the Future by a guy named Cornelius Venema. Um, he's one of our speakers up at, at our upcoming conference this November. You can get details at ReformationVoice.com. If you've missed any of these past uh, podcasts, just go to The Gospel for Life in your podcast catcher. You should be able to catch up tomorrow. We'll finish up um, on this subject. We'll see you next time.